Hello, and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. My name is Alexis Goldsmith. And I'm Mark Dunley. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with the second part of New York Renews Climate State of the State. Then, for our peace bucket, we hear about the effort to get the Bethlehem Public Library to end its ban on Bethlehem's neighbors for peace. Later on, we hear about the call for Congress member Stefanik to resign over her promotion of genocide in Gaza. After that, volunteer coordinators at the sanctuary will talk about opportunities for interns and volunteers in this upcoming spring 2024 season. And we finish up with an interview about scientists of color created by former intern Aaron Blandin. But first, headlines. Spectrum is moving away from cable TV boxes in favor of a streaming device called Zumo, X-U-M-O, that will be significantly cheaper at $5 a month. However, the company is also raising its overall rates. The Time Union reports that the Albany County Historical Association, an underground railroad history project of the Capital Region, were recently awarded more than $700,000 in federal funding by the National Endowment for the Humanities. The Underground Railroad History Project will receive $250,000 to fund three components of a new 13,000 square foot interpretive center, an elevator system, geothermal heating, and cooling system, and the installation of historic Dutch barn timber frame entryway. The new facility will include a library, classrooms, and space for exhibitions. After less than three years on the job, Schenectady School Superintendent Annabelle Soler Jr. will be leaving by May to head up the Yonkers public school system. Spanish surrealistic painter Salvador Dali's controversial paintings commissioned by the Italian government to celebrate the divine company, comedy, on author Dante's 700th birthday is the focus of a new exhibit at the Sand Lake Center for the Arts through January 27. Dali, who had renounced all religions, was eventually fired after four years due to protest by Italian citizens, mainly Catholics. His 100 paintings captured Dante's harrowing journey through hell, purgatory, and heaven. Governor Hochul is considering removing murals of Native Americans in the state capitol building that are deemed offensive. Many people have long complained about the various images on the ceiling in the war room outside of the governor's office complex on the second floor of the state capitol. The state suddenly postponed public hearings on the Shepherd's Run solar farm hours before they were set to begin on Tuesday, as the town of Copeg is in court seeking to have the project application dismissed seven years after it was first proposed. Meanwhile, environmentalists were at the Capitol, including our own Alexis Goldsmith, once again seeking to expand the bottle bill to non-carbonated beverages and raise the deposit to a dime. That's it for headlines. On January 8th, 
the New York Renews Climate Coalition held a climate state of the state to outline its priorities for action at the state capitol this year. In part two of our coverage, we hear from two young climate activists, followed by some questions and answers with state legislators. New York Renews held a virtual climate state of the state press conference on Monday, January 8th, to discuss their climate justice priorities for 2024, the people's climate justice budget, and climate jobs and justice package. In part two of our coverage, we hear from two youth climate activists from We Stay, Nos Cuatamas from the South Bronx, uh, Melanie Giller and John Sanchez, followed by some questions and answers with Senator Kruger and Assemblymember Fahey. Hi, my name is Melanie, and I was born and raised in the South Bronx. I have many fond memories of growing up here. The open fire hydrants in the summer, the cocoa mango cherry ices, and the sounds of bachata playing down the block are staples of my childhood. But now that I am older, I realize my innocent childhood was too often corrupted by the consequences of environmental injustice. Picture this, a couple of 11-year-old middle schoolers, including myself, bragging about having an asthma pump. We thought we were so special because we had the privilege of stepping aside during gym class to take a break and breathe. Reflecting on my personal story now as a teenager, I realize there is nothing normal about a majority of my friend group having asthma. Relying on a medical inhaler to breathe is not a privilege, especially when the South Bronx has the highest rate of childhood asthma in New York City, according to a 2021 study by Manhattan College. Today, there are four peaker plants in the South Bronx that are polluting my community. Continuous exposure to harmful pollutants increase our risk of respiratory illnesses. The growing climate crisis worsens air quality and causes more events of extreme heat, which repeats the dangerous cycle of fighting to breathe. Without a choice, I paid the consequences of environmental injustice. Today, as a young adult, I invest my time and voice into fighting for my right to a clean and just environment. It is because of the injustices I inherited that I joined the environmental justice team at Nos Quedamos. It is time that, po that polluters are held responsible and that my neighborhood receives the help needed to rectify the situation. I urge the leaders of New York State to pass the three bills in the Climate Jobs and Justice Package and fund the People's Climate Justice Budget this year to meet the goals of the Climate Act. Thank you, and I now pass it over to my colleague, John. Thank you, Melanie, so much. So my name is John Sanchez, and I'm a youth leader passionate about environmental justice, climate resilience, and the protection of all communities. Justice and equality must be top priorities when addressing climate change. The impacts of climate change are not just environmental, but profoundly social and economic. Every effort to address climate change with justice in mind is a step towards a more equitable and sustainable future. What I need to see is a world where people collaborate to reduce emissions, where vulnerable communities, where the benefits of sustainability are shared by all. Among many of the transformative environmental justice projects listed in the People's Climate Justice Budget are Nos Quedamos South Bronx Resiliency Hubs. Funding the budget will allow historically underinvested communities to contribute their local knowledge and power to prepare for and overcome the disproportionate adversities of climate change. For young people like me, climate justice is calling my name because I know I deserve a sustainable, habitable reality and future. Addressing climate change, understanding its harsh impact on marginalized communities and demanding accountability from those in power is a necessity. Climate justice embodies our power for a resilient world 
where every individual, regardless of age or background, has the right to live in a healthy and sustainable environment. Allow us to create, allow us to create change. Let's collectively demand a better world for my generation and for those who will come after us. We can work together to create a future that is worthy of the ambitions we have for it. Climate justice is more than just naming our struggle. It is about determining our legacy. Thank you. My name is Mark Dunley, and while I'm a climate activist, I'm also a daily uh, news producer um, for uh, Hudson Mohawk Magazine, a radio uh, network in the Capital District. Um, there's been, unfortunately, a lot of disinformation campaign being organized by the fossil fuel industry, which legislators would need to counteract. And there was a lot of discussion about the need to raise funds, both for shovel-ready projects, uh, but also the Climate Superfund. Um, the governor has indicated that she does not want to be raising taxes or revenues in this year's budget. So I'm, I'm just sort of curious, what is the legislative strategy both to counteract the uh, disinformation campaign by the fossil fuel industry uh, and, and, and how do one convince the governor that the climate change is something where we need to put a fair amount of money on the table right now? Other legislators, Senator Kruger, would you like to respond to that question as well? Sure. I mean, it was just a couple of questions. I agree with Anna completely that it is our job as legislators, and really we depend on you, the advocates, and the scientists in your organizations to refute the false information when it is being put out there. And yes, some in the oil and gas industries are spending an enormous amount of money trying to convince us that there's really no problem and they don't really need to do anything. And so it is our jobs collectively to make sure that we are pushing back with facts and science every time we see this going on. And it has to be part of all of our jobs and our advocacy. Now, as far as money in the budget, of course, I'm the finance chair, so I'm very aware that what people ask for in money versus what the state has to spend are never in line with each other ever in the history of government. But it is also true, Mark, since you asked the question, you know that we did a $4 billion environmental act that the people voted for, and that money is not spent. Some of it has been, you know, soft allocated, but we can be focusing on what we think the priority uses of that money are, because that money is here now. You mentioned my climate um, polluters pay fund that Jeff Dinowitz and I are pushing very hard to get done because that would be $3 billion a year for 25 years, $75 billion of money. It's not a new tax on New Yorkers. It's an assessment on the worst oil and gas polluters in the world. And we really think that needs to be a priority because it saves us having to pay for it because we're making the polluters pay this money. The New York Heat Act that Pat Fahey and I talked about actually saves ratepayers by not wasting money on trying to keep up and build new gas infrastructure that we know we don't need. And if we don't stay focused on that, we will continue to waste money that we could be using for renewable energy ag agendas rather than continuing to support the gas and oil infrastructure that we know we have to get away from. So there's lots of different answers 
and lots of different pieces of solutions. No one silver bullet, in my opinion. Thank you. Thank you, Senator, so much. And I'll just real quickly from the New York Renews perspective on this one. I mean, it's not it certainly is not lost on us what we are up against when it comes to the oil and gas companies that are doing everything they can to to thwart the amazing progress New York has made so far and will continue to make um, thanks to the work of everybody on this call. And when it comes right down to it, New York Renews is going to fight like hell. That's what we're here for. And that's what we need. So that's what we're coming with this legislative session. And I see uh, Colin's hand up. Take it away, Colin. My question is about the New York Heat Act and uh, some of the politics around that. So I was wondering if you've heard anything about the governor, including a version of this in her executive budget, whether she ends up doing that or not. You know, what might be different, if anything, about the politics this year? Has the coalition expanded? Um, you know, has there been any push to get unions on board who I believe were skeptical last year? Um, this is Assemblywoman Fahey. Uh, very briefly, we have met with the governor's office. We are in regular touch with them and have pushed. Our goal will be to try to get as much of this in the budget. I think our coalition has grown. Momentum has grown. And God knows the weather-related disasters I, I think momentum is is continuing. Governor Hochul, in her State of the State on Tuesday, did announce that she supported much of the New York Heat Act, particularly the 100-foot rule to require a free gas line extension if you are within 100 feet of an existing line and the obligation to serve. She also included language about energy affordability, though she stopped short of calling for the 6% cap of household income for utilities bills. This has been Mark Dunley with the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So overall, obviously a lot of the climate activists were very excited uh, to see the New York Heat Act largely put in the budget. But for the most part, Governor Hochul ignored the climate crisis. Um, over 50 degrees today here in the capital uh, district. Um, many of the scientists believe we are almost at the point of hitting the 1.5 degrees uh, Celsius uh, target. And so um, not a sense from Governor Hochul, unfortunately, that she sees this as a climate emergency. And we will certainly continue to follow this through the legislative session. Um, and in our next segment for our Peace Bucket, we have an update on the ongoing controversy over the Bethlehem Town Library plant banning a local peace group following a public forum on Gaza. On Monday, January 8th, more than a dozen peace activists and representatives of the Muslim community spoke at a meeting of the Bethlehem Town Library Board in opposition to the board's one-year ban of Bethlehem Neighbors for Peace from holding events. The library imposed the ban following the December 5th talk by Israeli-American activist Miko Pallad in opposition to Israel's assault on Gaza. Pallad's grandfather is one of the signers of the documents created in Israel, and his father was a general in the Israeli army, though he resigned over what he reviewed as a failure to prevent war crimes. The library did refuse to cancel the talk after protests by supporters of Israel. Those individuals did repeatedly disrupt the talk, accusing a Pallad of hate speech. 
The library board initially imposed the ban because it said that Pallad had violated their rules against commercial activity after he sold a few of his books from his car in the parking lot after the event. The board later said that Pallad was also guilty of harassment after he pointed out that one of the individuals disrupting his talk was wearing a t-shirt of the Israeli Defense Forces, which he described as a terrorist organization. We hear from three of the first speakers, Trudy Quave and Leslie Hudson of Bethlehem Davis for Peace, and then their attorney, Steve Downs, who indicated that the group was prepared to sue the library on First Amendment grounds if it refused to rotate the ban. The board itself took no action on the ban during its meeting. I'm Trudy Quave, Bethlehem Neighbors for Peace. I want to thank the Bethlehem Library Board for their decision to allow BNP to host the Maple Palace program on December 5th. I was disheartened when the Library Board decided to sanction BNP in response to criticism of the Miku Palace program. Some critics went to great lengths to disrupt the event. And at that December 11th board meeting, I was taken aback by the eagerness of several of the board members to penalize BNP organizers and not the agitators. We heard a lot of accusations at the board meeting on 12-11 about actions of BNP and Nico Pellet. We were called anti-Semitic, accused of supporting Hamas, hate speech, accused of not controlling the crowd. It was a very one-sided meeting and BNP had not been notified that this would be a meeting focused on what crimes BNP had allegedly committed and what punishment we would be subject to by the library board. After reflection on the comments made at the 1211 library board meeting, it occurred to me that not a single individual spoke about the suffering of the local Palestinian families. Local Muslim families have also lost loved ones and the war on Gaza continues. Many people in our community came to hear to the talk to hear what Miko Pellet had to say and were thankful that he was there to speak out for Palestinian rights. Miko does have a pro-Palestinian perspective, but he's not pro-Hamas. He advocates for equality for Palestinian people. I'm going to give you a brief definition of Islamophobia. It's an extreme fear of and hostility toward Islam and Muslims which often leads to hate speech, hate crimes, as well as social and political discrimination. In the US, in the past 20 years, thousands of Muslim families have been targets of physical and verbal attacks. As the library considers further charging PNP with violating their anti-harassment policies, I would ask you for a minute to try to consider if you were a Muslim, how you would have felt at the Michael Pellet talk Remember, some of the people who attended brought their children. What if while attending that event, an individual danced around you, waving a phone to record you, wearing a t-shirt with the Israeli Air Force logo? How would you have felt if members of the crowd chanted hate speech while you tried to listen to a speaker who was talking about the human rights of the Palestinian people? How would you have felt if the police arrived, summoned bulletproof vests, for no apparent reason. Many Muslims did not have the opportunity to hear Miko Pellet. He will be speaking again in this community. They don't dare have him speak in a public venue. We all know why. And Leslie Hudson, 
Bethlehem Neighbors for Peace has been an active peace organization dedicated to education and discussion of a large variety of current events for 20 years, starting before the invasion of Iraq. We have created a space for many alternative viewpoints to be discussed and debated so that people can make informed decisions about the kind of world they want to live in. This is a valued service to our community. This entire recent situation could have been largely avoided if the Library Board of Trustees had taken the initiative to remind the audience on December 4th to attend the program, they must adhere to the patron behavior policies with no intimidation or harassment from the audience to disrupt our, disrupt our right to have a speaker and use the library services. This is in accordance with your own policies. We, BNP, are protected under those policies. Shouting hate speech and shutting down is intimidation and harassment. It appears you have chosen a side to defend while ignoring your responsibility to enforce the library policies fairly and evenly. At the event on the 5th, someone placed some books on a table near the door. We have no idea who placed them there. And as soon as the director asked Trudy, who had not even seen them to remove them, she did so and put them on the floor. Some members of the community are trying to silence our right to free speech. They are framing what words we can use by labeling any discussion of Zionist policies as anti-Semitism, hate speech, and terrorism. Zionism is a political group formed in 1897. We can and should rightfully critique political and military policies when they are unjust. We have a civic responsibility to hold our governments accountable, and that can only be accomplished through education and awareness. The United Nations, the World Health Organization, and most of the international community have voiced fierce opposition to the events in Gaza and repeatedly are calling for a ceasefire. BNP has never supported the actions of Hamas. We do not support war in any form. We have been labeled terrorists on social media. We have been referred to as Bethlehem Neighbors for War in the local paper, which is again an attempt to take our rights away for free speech. Name calling diminishes the speaker. Michael Miko Pilot is an internationally acclaimed speaker, has spoken in the Albany area at least three times since 2017, two of which were here in this library. Alice Walker wrote the foreword to his book, The General Son. We have never faced such complete disregard of public decorum and patron behavior policy in any of the forums we have done the past 20 years. Our rights as patrons of this library have held for 20 years. Now they have been completely discarded in favor of the forceful opposition of a current event topic that this group does not want exposed. The man, malintent of this group on December 5th was to stop our right to free speech. The library did little to enforce their own patron policies as our event was constantly disrupted by loud shouting. The board's enforcement of its policies is Three arbitrary minutes. and capricious. Uh, I'm Steve Downs. I'm an attorney representing Bethlehem Neighbors for Peace. I would like to ask. I would like to ask the board to preserve all materials concerning the library sanctioning of Bethlehem Neighbors for Peace. Please do not destroy anything. There can be consequences for that. As a public agency, before you can sanction Bethlehem Neighbors for Peace in a manner that significantly impacts their right to free speech and access to public library facilities, you must hold a due process hearing. A due process hearing need not be a formal proceeding, but it must contain a clear statement as to what rules BNP is claimed to have violated and provide an opportunity for BNP to be heard on that issue and respond to the evidence. And it must be before, before you impose the sanction. Instead, you proceeded to sanction BNP with a one-year ban on the use of <coughs> library meeting rooms 
without providing any due process whatsoever in violation of the law. We now ask that this ban be removed because it was unlawfully imposed. We further ask that if the library wants to proceed with this matter, that it do so in a lawful manner by providing written notice of charges and an opportunity to be heard before sanctions are imposed. In an email dated January 5, 2024, from Jeffrey Kirkpatrick, uh, it, which was sent after the ban was imposed, he stated that the sanction is based on a violation of rule number two in the general rules of use, which state, meeting rooms may not be used. Now, meeting room, I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on that. <clears throat> Meeting rooms may not be used for sale promotion, social affairs, or for the benefit of private individuals, commercial concerns engaged in marketing goods or services. It is 100% clear that the meeting room in which Miko Pellet spoke on December 5 was not used for sale promotions or for the benefit of anybody in marketing or goods or services. This has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So this is going to be a continuing story. Um, I, as an attorney, I'm going to say the Bethlehem Town Board uh, Library uh, is on very, very shaky legal ground. Uh, I will also note, I was very surprised to see that the board president uh, was Mark Kissinger, uh, who I <laughs> clashed horns with uh, as he was the welfare policy advisor for Senator Bruno. Uh, and it was very surprising that a Republican was leading the Bethlehem Town Library. Um, but uh, we'll be continue to uh, cover this. And for those of you just tuning in, I'm Mark Dunley. And I'm Alexis Goldsmith. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, W-O-O-S-L-P 98.9 FM Schenectady and W-O-O-A-L-P 106.9 FM Albany and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend, a neighbor, a co-worker, or that special person you see at the bus stop every morning. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. North Country Congresswoman Elise Stefanik attracted national attention after her confrontation with several university presidents over the Palestinian-Israeli conflict led to two of them to resign. Now local constituents have sent a letter drafted with the help of Ralph Nader urging her to resign for promoting genocide in Gaza. We hear from Professor Peter Lavinia. We're talking with Peter Lavinia about a recent letter that was sent to uh, Congressmember Elise Stefanik. Uh, we often have Peter on. He's co-chair of the Green Party of, of New York. But uh, he actually has done some work with Ralph Nader, one of the people who helped draft this letter to Stefanik. And he's also uh, assistant professor uh, at uh, SUNY Oneonta. Um, and thought that would be another good perspective to bring in. But basically, this letter urged uh, Elise Stefanik, who I'll acknowledge is now my Congress member, representing the North Country, and the letter urged the Republican to resign immediately for your aiding and abetting genocide of Palestinians in Gaza by voting to send arms to the IDF, uh, Israel Defense Forces, to perpetrate the crime in violation of the Genocide Convention. Uh, the letter also raised Stefanik's role in the answer of the presidents of Harvard and MIT 
for allowing pro-Palestinian protests on campus. So what, what and I understand this letter was initially drafted by Ralph Nader, many people know is initially from family from Lebanon and been quite active in the Palestinian issue. And, and Bruce Fine, who's an international human rights lawyer. But, uh, you know, Peter, maybe you could walk us through what, what sort of prompted this letter to, to, to Safanik and the call on her to resign? Uh, it was specifically her actions uh, in front of Congress uh, when she pulled the presidents of uh, MIT, Harvard, um, and uh, uh, why am I Princeton. And Princeton, right. <laughs> no, P Penn. I'm sorry, Penn. 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 Um, in front of Congress. Um, and then, uh, you know, she proceeded to uh, question them and excoriate them about hypothetical students calling for a genocide. Um, while she herself is voting to arm uh, Israel and the IDF's uh, actual genocide of Palestinians in Gaza. Um, so, uh, you know, I think Ralph uh, and, you know, myself, Bruce Fine, and others in the district who have uh, signed this letter and, uh, and, and sent it to her, um, we really do believe that what she's doing uh, is is uh, morally repugnant, um, and and what she's doing in terms of freedom of speech on campus is very chilling. Um, all the while, uh, actually voting for and supporting um, you know terrible loss of human life in Gaza, over twenty thousand people dead and and many millions uh, displaced. And I, I would assume that. Ralph, you, people signed this letter, are basically opposed to the whole principle of, of genocide, whether it's genocide of the Palestinian people or genocide of, of Jewish people or genocide of Armenians or whatever. That genocide is basically a bad idea and one shouldn't be saying, well, it's terrible to say we would support genocide for one group. It's okay to support genocide for another group. Yeah, that's absolutely true. But no one on campus is calling for for genocide. I mean, this is a you know an argument that we've heard for the last few months. Um, what they are calling for is for the United States uh, to stop arming Israel, which is conducting genocidal actions in Gaza, um, and supporting uh, you know the Palestinian people who are under constant bombardment um, and attack, uh, and they're conflating support of the Palestinian people. Um, with uh, you know this this alleged uh, call for attacks um, on on the Jewish people, which is not true, um, and and they're using that to suppress pro-Palestinian speech uh, on campuses, which is very chilling. I remember I covered a rally at the state capitol probably a month or six weeks ago at this point, and it was organized by initially by students. Uh, at SUNY Albany, a local DSA chapter at the campus, but also a, a newly formed, I forget the exact title, but Palestinian support group of, of, of people, particularly of Arab descent. And, and they became very nervous uh, as the event came closer that they would perhaps be targeted by SUNY Albany. And, right. and actually the other chapter and a, another ally group were banned uh, from Columbia um, University. Um, so it does seem like most of the, at least by the official tax, has been more been the groups that express support for Palestine rather than groups that express support for, for Israel in this situation. And, you know, you're a professor, uh, and I know you've taught a couple of the colleges here in the Capital District as well as Oneonta. You know, you know, what are college professors feeling this day as, as well as students about their right to, to speak out? 
Uh, there's a nervousness uh, and, and uh, kind of a chilling of the speech on campus. I've seen it with students, uh, you know, here in New York State. Um, you know, you've had students in New York City have the police called on them for tweets uh, about uh, Palestine. Um, and I, on my own campus, I saw students worried about um, expressing open support and faculty as well. One of the things that we saw over the weekend uh, was the Modern Language Association, which is a very large um, professional association for literature professors, about 10,000 people pass a resolution calling on campuses to protect freedom of speech, specifically for pro-Palestinian faculty, students and staff, uh, because of the chilling effect that this is having. In fact, there was a professor from the University of Pennsylvania there who spoke of the, um, the, the kind of harassment and doxing that has been going on since September, actually, prior to October 7th, um, where uh, she uh, helped organize a Palestinian film festival. And then um, that was shut down because um, pro-Israel uh, members of the community thought that it was anti-Semitic. Um, her name is Dr. Huda Fakhardine, and she's uh, it's 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 a case where she says she's having mental anguish because of it. So this is this is very real. I think that it's it's a very problematic and and, and chilling thing that's happening uh, in order to uh, suppress what is I think a very large outpouring of support for the Palestinian people. Poll after poll shows that Americans want a ceasefire. They do not want to see what's going on in, in Gaza to continue. And I remember a month or so ago, you know, some, I think actually Professor Emeritus at Union College of Schenectady, I think he actually may have been retired, but the, uh, like a Muslim Students Association, asked him to come in and give a history of the situation between Palestine and Israel. And that generated a lot of, uh, I guess, community protests. And he was baffled. He says, I I've been teaching this for the last 25 years. And never has this suddenly become, you know, facts should not become politicized. I, I, I'm just trying to report what's going on. I assume that Congressman Stefanik has not yet agreed to resign. Is that a fair assumption? No, I, I don't believe that Congress, Congress member Stefanik has uh, even responded to this letter, even though it's it's been sent to her office uh, at least twice. Now, one of the other interesting things is that the International Court of Justice, which is the United Nations highest judicial body, is actually going to begin uh, hearings um, within the next week or so in a case brought by South Africa that accuses Israel of committing uh, genocide in, in Gaza. And actually, kind of unusual for Israel, who often ignores this particular court, um, they've actually agreed to participate, I guess, a understand that their uh, world's reputation is, is pretty low at this moment. And so they want they des decide to take the opportunity to sort of, um, you know, defend themselves uh, be before the court. Um, you know, what's your feeling about this, this court case? And, you know, how strong is the case that uh, Israel at this point is actually committing genocide by its, you know, what is it now, 20,000 Palestinians or more have been killed? And well, I think that there's a, a very strong case that what they're doing is genocide. If you look at the Geneva Conventions, that what they're doing in terms of targeting civilians, um, attacking hospitals, um, cutting off, uh, you know, electricity, cutting off, um, you know, outside aid from coming in. Um, these are, you know, kind of doctrinal uh, issues uh, when you look at, at the Geneva Conventions that lead to genocide, right? I mean, you've got uh, 2.3 million people in Gaza, and and uh, most of them are displaced at this point. Large amounts of women and children targeted. Um, 
22,000 people dead. I mean, these are, if you look at, at the conventions themselves, they, these are things that, that, that are considered, you know, targeting of civilians um, and then uh, it, it, war crimes at least, and likely because it's against an entire population, um, it's, it's a, it, it, it's a move towards genocide. And, you know, I think the, uh, you know, Inter International Court of Justice, I think it's a really important case um, because it's going to force uh, the United Nations to uh, actually have a, a much larger conversation on this on the world stage. Um, and Israel participating, I think you're right, is because it knows that its standing is very low. It's going to try and make its case. But I, I don't know where it's going to go because the Security Council would have to rule uh, on it. But, you know, both Israel and, and South Africa are signatories of the Geneva Conventions. Um, they're supposed to not engage in genocidal acts, mm. but also stop other uh, countries who but, are engaging them. But we've been talking Peter Levine, your letter that many constituents have sent to Congressman Savannah, and this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk magazine. Uh, and certainly we'll keep you abreast of any breaking news if Congressman Savannah was to decide to resign. Just uh, perhaps a I don't know, note of caution, but the International um, Court of Justice did rule 20 years ago that the uh, security wall that Israel was uh, building uh, was in violation of international law. And of course, uh, 20 years later, uh, it's still there. This program is hosted, engineered, and produced by volunteers. And there are plenty of other opportunities outside of the radio to get involved in the sanctuary. To tell us more, Sina Basilahuki speaks with the Sanctuary's Volunteer Coordinator. We're just at the beginning of January, and some of the colleges around here are already in session. A few others are soon to be back in the classroom. And we have some really exciting opportunities coming to the Sanctuary for Independent Media. And so I brought our volunteer coordinator, Marshall Hildreth, to speak with me about some of these opportunities coming up. Welcome. Hello. Great to be back. I love HMM and getting to plug all our amazing volunteer and internship opportunities. And uh, you've yeah. been now with us for one season. So you've kind of like got your boots on the ground and seen how the sanctuary is working. What did you observe with working with the volunteers and interns last semester? Oh, boy. what I feel like it's easier to say what didn't I observe because it's a group mm. of very passionate people. Uh, who are always so eager to be involved. Uh, I think interns have like a very specific drive uh, to why they're here. Uh, a lot of our volunteers have, uh, I would say, become lifers or have been here since the sanctuary's inception. Uh, so they're always so willing to help out. But this season, that reflection makes me want to focus on people who have not heard about the sanctuary or maybe friends of volunteers and interns who have tangentially heard about us, but we're still kind of an enigma to them. So I want to, to get those people involved. And what are some ways that people can get involved? You've got their interest. They've like got the little flag that the sanctuary <laughs> is the place to go. What are some things that you would like to embrace them and direct them to? Yeah. So I think a great way to kind of find that out is understand what they're looking for time-wise. There is no shortage of tasks at the sanctuary. <laughs> right. So if you have an interest or um, curiosity, we can probably find a place for you. But I would say we have projects through all our initiatives. 
So if you have an idea about something specific tailored to, let's say, HMM or our nature lab, even Collard City Growers or People's Health Sanctuary, we can discuss that. If you're looking for more daily tasks, uh, our kitchen is always in need of a good sweep. Uh, We have a bunch of painting you could do, could be creative with that as well. Filing, we have a huge endless archive that is always in need of assistance. Or even if you're just more of an administrator, kind of want to zhuzh up the place and make it all spiffy or organized, that is always welcomed. And then events. Those are a daily thing. Absolutely. Events. We are always trying to get ahead of ourselves and be prepared, uh, whether that be setting up chairs, tables, uh, making sure everything is good to go day of. If you're more of a want to be in the action type of person, uh, camera crew is always a fun experience. You get to be kind of in the midst of the event itself. Oh, and I hear there will actually be a camera crew training happening on the day of the open house on there February 3rd. There will be February 3rd, 11 to 2 p.m. in the Sanctuary main space. So if you have no camera experience like myself, um, <laughs> it, it's a really great opportunity to not only learn uh, camera work here at the Sanctuary, how we do it, but possibly take those skills elsewhere, whether you're looking for Uh, college credit and a camera course, or you just kind of want to freelance. I think it's a great opportunity. And you were going to also mention the long term, right? So how, what does that look like? Yeah. uh, So a couple of our initiatives have uh, long-term projects. I think Air Justice Lab is a great example of this. Our Air Justice Lab coordinator, Olivier, uh, has certain steps uh, she's hitting as time goes on. One of that being installing air monitors, along with that outreach to businesses and folks, whether they be friends, family, or just random people on the street you meet, uh, getting air monitors on homes. Uh, There will be an education and outreach portion with that as well. So that's a great example of something specific uh, and long-term. If you have your own idea for something specific and long-term that jives with our mission and a specific initiative, then we can always give that a go as well. Yeah, those projects, having been a former intern myself, was a really great way of feeling like the creator around a concept and coming away with, I did that. Um, I know I helped Brenda Ann Keneally with her installation. And so we have some really great events. We'll be announcing those soon, a little ahead of the uh, the open house. Um So what kind of people are we looking for for the uh, project-based volunteering? Yeah, I would say self-sustainers, self-motivators, people with uh, long-term vision, and people who are really great working in a team uh, or a team dynamic, I would say suit this best. That being said, we always welcome help. But these are really for people who have a passion project or can identify with one of our initiatives uh, very closely. And I'll just give a quick plug for the radio because I find a Hudson Mohawk magazine can be a really great tool for volunteers and interns who want to investigate a theme. Then you come away with this little portfolio, for example, around environmental issues or birthing justice or community health work. Yes, I think HMM is like such a great stepping stone into the sanctuary. Uh, you can always get more involved and have that become your 
your initiative, let's say, but also if you just want an excuse to go interview and talk to people, uh, like you said about uh, health justice or environmental justice and get yourself into those circles, that's another great way to contribute to the sanctuary. Uh, Also allows you to kind of learn more about, let's say, Nature Lab or People's Health Sanctuary, uh, even Sanctuary Kitchen. There's so many different angles you can come from when volunteering at the sanctuary. And the Eco Art Trail. Which yes, is our la- yes. we're finishing up and it'll finalize at Freedom Fest. Yes, the Eco Art Trail honors the art, culture, history, the ecology, the legacy of the Stockbridge Muncie community. Uh, the sanctuary resides on their traditional homelands. So uh, seeing that culmination in June of this year will be super exciting. Um, and a great project for somebody who's interested in. Uh, Uh, honoring indigenous legacy and ecology and understanding how North Troy ties into that. Absolutely. I think that's probably one of the most intersectional uh, projects or initiatives we have at the sanctuary. Uh, And having just kind of come from college like myself, I think intersectionality is a huge theme that professors are looking for. So even if you're a potential intern and kind of want to Find your way into the sanctuary. I think we can always meld your interest in what your professors are looking for uh, with our projects. So, Marshall, there's an opportunity to speak with you at the Troy Farmers Market this Saturday, right? There is. So come visit me. I would love to tell you all about the sanctuary. Uh, I'll answer all your questions. Uh, As someone who until happening upon the sanctuary through Vista, uh, had no idea this incredible place existed. I wish I had someone to kind of approach and ask what the heck is going on over there. So please take that opportunity to peruse, shop around, treat yourself to something, but also come say hi. I would love to chat. Wonderful. That's an opportunity to come and ask about volunteer and intern opportunities. And otherwise, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, so I am always in our inbox. So please email us at info at mediasanctuary.org. Our phone number as well, if you're more of a call the place type of person is 518-272-2390. And I'm never opposed to snail mail. So if you ever want to mail (laughs) us anything, our PO box is box 35, uh, Troy, New York, 12181. Uh, and always be on the lookout on our website because you never know when we're going to have a tabling event uh, or just come say hi. I'm probably going to be the door person at, uh, during our spring season. And the open campus taking place on February 3rd is a great time just to like drop by without any larger commitment. Mm-hmm. Talk to Marshall. I'll be there. This is Cena. And to get a little bit of an idea of our initiatives before feeling like you're committing to anything. Yes. And even if you do commit at some point, uh, I feel like the sanctuary is a very forgiving place as far as time Mm. is concerned. So if you ever need to pull back, uh, whether it be for work, education, personal reasons, uh, we're always so understanding. Uh, So it's always a yes, how can you support us, but also how can we support you? Well, thank you so much, Marshall, for coming to speak with us. And I hope you'll come back to update us about the upcoming season once it's finalized. Oh, absolutely. You can guarantee it. Uh, I'm always happy to be on HMM. Thank you, Sina. Thank you, Marshall.
So I wish I could say that operators are standing by waiting for your call, but that email inbox is open. We need volunteers. If you're a college student, real life experience is probably even more important than what you learn uh, in the classroom. And there is a loss of local media. We need media people. Be the media. And to hear an example of work from a former intern who created a project with Hudson Mohawk Magazine, this next segment is part of Erin Blanding's series, People's Science, where she interviewed a wide variety of scientists and researchers of color. This is Erin Blanding, and today I'm talking to Dr. Christine Daniels for People's Science, and we're going to be talking about her research and these interesting times we're living in. So thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Erin. Of course. So I'm wondering, just to get started, if you could tell us about your research and possibly what impact you hope your research has on your field. Of course. I'm not a problem. So overall, the goal of my research is to try to develop a vaccine for HIV. More specifically, I'm interested in studying the immunology of HIV-neutralizing antibodies and how they interact with the HIV envelope. Um, a couple, some questions that we're kind of interested in answering are, which types of antibodies are actually able to neutralize the, the virus. Um, we're interested in identifying the sites on the viral envelope that are vulnerable to neutralization. We're also interested in trying to determine the mechanism through which those neutralizing antibodies are able to neutralize the virus. And lastly, and probably most importantly, we're interested in trying to develop ways to enhance those um, antibody responses to make them more efficient at viral neutralization. So using, these, uh, using that information, we're able to design molecules that can mimic the viral envelope. And the more information we have, the better we can design molecules that adequately recapitulate what the virus looks like. And ultimately, when we put those molecules into people, they're able to train the, their bodies that way they can recognize the virus and also have a higher chance of eliciting those antibodies that have the capability of neutralizing the virus. In a nutshell, that's what I do. And in terms of impact, um, HIV is a scourge that's, you know, plagued, plagued humanity for at least three decades. And even today, there's at least 37 million people living with HIV globally. So I definitely think it has impact in terms of the need for a vaccine. Um, I think it has intersectional impact as well in terms of the demographics that are typically affected by HIV, largely people of low socioeconomic status, um, preferentially people of color, and um, yeah, so I think that there's definitely, there's definitely room for a vaccine in that space. Um, another thing I'd like to point out in terms of the impact that this research has is that when people think of HIV, they typically, uh, now it's more thought of as a chronic illness that people are able to live with and manage with the currently available therapies. And while it's great that we have these therapies and they've been really helpful in prolonging lifespan and, quali and preserving quality of life, they're actually not feasible for eradicating the, um, eradicating HIV. For one thing, um, management of the disease is a lifelong regimen. So this requires that people are 100% compliant with their medications, which I'm sure anyone can relate to being told to do something every day at a specific time and forgetting once or twice things, um, you know, whether it be working out or taking vitamins or anything that you have to strictly adhere to, whereas those might be um, less serious, in the case of HIV, that can be a life or death decision. Um, also, access to these medications can be um, impacted by socioeconomic status. Um, they could be cost prohibitive. 
the availability of these resources and also um, just stigma associated with having HIV and trying to seek out these resources. So I think a, a vaccine is needed for a, a number of reasons, in addition to having a viable treatment option. Gotcha. Did you want to add anything else about how COVID-19 has affected your research? So COVID-19 COVID has affected my research in a lot of ways. It's it's canceled opportunities that I had to present and um, to different events I was supposed to participate in in terms of sharing my research. It gave me the opportunity to work from home for a couple of months, which, which was actually nice because I was able to focus on um, writing more so. So as a black woman, you know, I'm a black woman, you're a black woman. I'm, I'm pretty excited by what's been going on with the uprising happening today. And so I'm just wondering, what excites you most about what's going on today in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement? I think that this has been a beautiful byproduct of what happens when you have timing and opportunity. I think, you know, a lot of bad things have come out of the pandemic, but I think one of the good things that, if you can say that, come out is that it's created a, a time and a space where the world is essentially paused. People aren't working, which is unfortunate, or they're working remotely but there's, there's limited distractions. So there's not sports, there's not concerts, there's limited travel. Um, all of these things are on halt. And so the world is kind of forced to pay attention to what's happening right now in a way that's really hard to avoid. I mean, it's on every radio station, it's on every television show, there's ads and social media. Everywhere you go, you're kind of confronted with these issues that, and under normal circumstances, we have the privilege of being able to avoid. And so I'm excited that these conversations that we've been trying to push through for so long are finally being recognized, acknowledged, and starting to um, be had. Gotcha. Yeah, I agree. These aren't new issues, and I'm really glad people are talking about it now. And so thinking about more of like a structural thing, you know, based on your experience, what do you think is the first step in making STEM more welcoming to people of color? <laughs> um, I have several first steps, but um, one thing I think that's really important is that we normalize us being in these spaces. Right now, it's, it's, it's treated as such an anomaly to see a person of color in a position in academia or in industry, um, especially with a higher level degree. You know, it's few and far between. So I think, one, increasing the numbers, like actually having us occupy these spaces in numbers that are concordant with our um, representation in the population at large. And I think that in order to do that, there's a lot of barriers that need to be removed. Um, you know, when we do, out of the people that are able to overcome those barriers or jump those hurdles to enter these spaces, you know, we, we enter these spaces in which our credibility and our merit are constantly called into question after having to do so much to get here. And so it's insulting and it's kind of discouraging and it causes a lot of people to end up leaving these spaces after achieving so much. So I think um, making it normal for us to be here and not such a, you know, strange thing and also removing the access the barriers that prevent access to these spaces. And one of the ones um, I can think of offhand is that um, a lot of these positions or require experience to get them and um, even entry level positions. And so I think the whole notion that experience um, is required to gain experience inhibits, it um, prevents people from being able to access these spaces. And I guess what I mean by that, um, a specific example are terms of research inter internships. So for any graduate level program, whether that be medical school, a PhD program, some master's program, a lot of them require research experience as a component of their application. Getting that research experience, if you don't have any experience, a lot of times the positions that are available to you are unpaid. 
And to be able to take on an unpaid research position requires a level of privilege that many people don't have to be able to devote time and effort towards working for free. And so I, and a lot of the paid uh, internships are so competitive that even applicants applying for those already have research experience. So I think removing that barrier um, and creating more paid opportunities for people to participate in research would help increase, um, increase access to these spaces. Gotcha. I, that's, those are really interesting points. The barriers are definitely there and very um, vast. And so my next question is, what advice could you give a young person of color navigating your field? I would say to start early. As soon as you know or think you know or have an inkling that you may be interested in research, I would start seeking out opportunities, um, whether that be actual paid or volunteer work. Um, shadowing people, talking to people who are um, involved in roles that are centered around research, asking for, you know, if there's a professor that you like, asking about their research and if there's ways that you can get involved and learn more about it. Um, yeah, just kind of taking that dive. Even if you, you know, do do that and you realize that it's not for you, you're not really into research, it's still a valuable experience. The skills you learn from doing research, learning how to critically analyze problems and think, these are skills that are just great to have in life in general, and they're highly transferable. So it's never, it wouldn't be a wasted effort. It's not a waste of your time to pursue um, research if you're interested in it, but definitely start early. And if you can identify a mentor, um, that would be great too, to just kind of help you navigate the process because it's not very transparent. And a lot of the things that are necessary to advance in this career path are not obvious. Gotcha. This has been Erin Blanding, and today I spoke with Dr. Christine Daniels about her research and the interesting times we're living in for people science, and thanks so much for tuning in. And that was an example of what an intern can do here at Hudson Mohawk uh, Magazine. Uh, that was part of Erin Blanding's series, People Science. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Alexis Goldsmith. And I'm Mark Dunley, our wonderful engineer tonight. It was Joan Eason. Thanks to all our volunteers who made our show possible. And tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news, locally produced, or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and all the stories you hear on today's show are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you listening and until next time.